Today on episode 18 of the Beaver County History Podcast, we talk about Native Americans and local history with public historians David Halawiko, Mark Grego, Michael Kishbooker, and Tony Lavorna. They consider them savages from the beginning. They were unchristian, like, yet they had society that rivaled anything in Europe. I mean, they weren't taking a dump in a pot and dumping it out the window into their street like in Europe. They know the people that grew up in Beaver Falls, the people that grew up in Southside. They know their history. You know, we need the smaller organizations to keep that history alive and going, and we need the community members to continue to support that, or else years from now, it's not going to exist. You're listening to the Beaver County History Podcast, a production of the Social Voice Project. What is history? Local history seems to be a straightforward idea. Yeah, that's a kind of an interesting science story. Thank you for having me on the podcast. This is one that I definitely enjoy that dives into local history. What is history? It's the history of a small, well-defined area. History is his story. And it's also her story. It is an account of past events and sequence of time. The people, the places, and the events in all of our lives. You're listening to the Beaver County History Podcast. It was very interesting and really brought history to life. Oh, the creation myths are utterly fascinating. I mean, there are so many different kinds of creation myths just in our area alone. Over the years, I have studied so many different creation myths and mythologies from all over the world. I'm not talking about just Greek and Roman. I'm talking about African, Indian. In full honesty, I do not see any culture out there that is just seems to be so imaginative and so attached to nature as Native Americans were. When you study their creation myths and their mythologies, everything is centered around nature and it's so majestically beautiful. It's fortunate that a lot of these mythologies have been preserved not only by the descendants of Senecas, Algonquins, Shingos, Delaware Indians, but there's also an abundance of those preservations made by contemporary historians as well. And I'm just so glad and so fortunate that we have that. It just wasn't Greeks and ancient Hebrews reciting oratory. The Native Americans were doing it on this continent for 10,000 years, well, well before any kind of white European ever came here. I am totally fascinated with them because I have chosen, as far as in regards to the book, the Eastern Woodland Indians as a representative example, because they're just one of many great and complex cultures that presided over the land here. And most people don't even realize that these tribes, they sometimes spoke several different languages and dialects. They had cultural beliefs and systems that were varied from each group. There's a myriad amount of information and complexity to them. And I don't feel that most of the general population even realizes that today. Because of that culture of the movies in the 1950s and 60s, you know, the kids thought all Native Americans lived in teepees. Every time I give a tour, I have to tell people, this is not what Native Americans did here. Yes, there were killings by Native Americans, you know, here, but basically they helped the settlers. They weren't, you know, they weren't aggressive. I mean, some were, just like every other culture, some were. But 
they had a rich culture here. They were hunting and fishing and moving and building cabins and living and not attacking everybody. We find a lot of our history, you know, the, the names of our towns, El Aquipa, Beaver, come from the Native American history. Folks need to know that. It's, it's something that uh, I never grew up understanding. All those terms were created by white people, okay? They called themselves the people. You know, they just knew that they were here. Yeah, they didn't call themselves Delawares or Lenapes or Shingos or Shawnees. Those are names we gave them. I prefer to call the nation, whatever nation I'm talking about, by their name they prefer to use. I think it's it's important. I use Native Americans, but I don't know that that's proper. I, I use Native American or American Indian. So we're, we're getting away from the Indian name entirely. I try to explain to kids that it's not Indians, it's Native Americans. And I don't even know if Native Americans is right. I don't know. I mean, they're calling themselves First Nation, which I understand they're thinking, because they were. I mean, they, they were the First Nations of this country. Well, First Nations would not pertain to Indians living here. First Nations is in Canada. So if you're going to use the First Nations as a official title to talk about Indians here, for people who know that term or are familiar with that term, you might get them a bit confused because they may think that you're talking about Indians in northern Canada or in the Yukon Territories or Alaska. For the general sense of it, I, I do like indigenous peoples because that covers basically not only Native Americans here on the North American continent. You may be able to use the term indigenous peoples to also include the Mesoamerican peoples, you know, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the people, you know, further south of us. So again, you have to be careful what you're talking about. So if you're going to talk about just Native Americans in general, just here on the North American continent, I think that's acceptable. And I think that just covers, you know, the wide diversity of tribes within the continental United States. When Rivers of Destiny, which was the bicentennial book that Beaver County wrote, one of the articles in it, and it would never be included today, was the last Indian killing in Beaver County. Okay. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's sort of saying, well, look, this was the last murder by Indians. And I'm thinking, it's like glorifying the fact that these were bloodthirsty savages. No, they weren't. We invaded their land. We forget, we were the invaders. Now, the Indians knew surveying would result in just more settlers coming. So as the night draws near, it was December of 1751. And as the chief grows angry, he realizes there's going to be no land left if these settlers come in and take more land. So at this, the chief pronounces what is supposedly known as a curse on Pennsylvania. And the curse goes something like this. The gold will be turned to iron and the iron turned to gold. The waters will run red with blood and the blood will turn to water. It will never know peace, only vague fear. Now, this curse was the tale that was orally told and passed down throughout the entire region. So before we dismiss it, maybe we should consider this because think about it, okay? It could be argued at least at some point to some degree that some of this has come to fruition throughout the Pennsylvania region. For example, the gold will turn to iron. The investments that were made here to produce large profits of those who invested heavily in iron and steel was profitable. But it's no secret that all of these things, all these fortunes were lost in the iron and steel industries as they were pulled out of this region. 
The next line, the curse referring to the waters running red with blood and the blood will turn to water. It is hardly a stretch if one considers that many bloody battles took place here in Pennsylvania through the border of Ohio and even into West Virginia. The French and Indian War broke out, General Braddock's army at the Battle of Monongahela, and of course, the Pontiac's Rebellion. The line, the blood will turn to water. How many catastrophic floods and towns have there been in this region? Now you could say that's a little bit of a stretch, but you know, one could argue either way. And then finally the line, it will never know peace only vague fear. So is this all mere coincidence or could there be something to Amana Pela's curse? That's my question. <laughs> the first Beaver County that moved into the region was 1792. So, I mean, we got 228 years. The Native Americans have been around in the area since 10,000 years ago, according There's to There's evidence that some, some of it could even go back as far as 15,000 years. The reason why that can't be accurately determined, of course, is because of the, the Ohio River. 200, 300 years ago, the Ohio River was a lot more shallow than it is now. So when the dams and everything were constructed in Beaver County, we buried a lot of archaeological evidence that is still buried in the water. So it's highly unlikely we'll ever be able to retrieve it. And unfortunately, you know, when you try to excavate certain places you know, you don't have a lot to go on now. So when you try to excavate things, you know, you're lucky if you do find pieces of pottery and, and, and spearheads and, and things of that nature, but it's hard to really, you know, find something that's authentic or, or, or important to the tribe. I'll bring out some names. These are the guys that did the research that I know in the 50s and 60s by digging up the sites. Bernie Catalucci, who was in his 90s, he's still alive. I've talked to him, amazing gentleman, worked at all these sites, like 30, and we'll mention 36 BV9, which is probably the premier Native American site in Beaver County. John Davidson. John Davidson's still alive. I've talked to John numerous times. John is the one that gave us multiple Native American artifacts. Bob Bonnage, we all know Bob Bonnage if we lived in Beaver Falls of the area. Bob was the premier guy to dig anything. He dug Fort McIntosh. He dug Native American sites. So in our museum, in the academy, we also have the Bob Blackner Native American Room. So what these gentlemen did, they actually showed how much of a society they had by digging up the sites and showing the pottery. I mean, the Native Americans 4,000 years ago were making pottery with limestone. They actually ground up shells, you know, for lime to, to strengthen the pottery. So they had this culture, and those are the type of people we need to talk to. A lot of it was destroyed in the late 1800s, early 1900s, because amateur archaeology, amateur archaeologists like Ira Mansfield, he wrote quite a bit about desecrating Native American graves and was not unashamed about it. So Ira Mansfield wrote a lot about his home museum. He, he had all these displays that he collected over the years. One of them's in the Little Beaver Historic Society, I think, of orchids. So that was case number nine, I think, or something like that. He had, he had 12 cases. And he wrote a lot about how he acquired them by digging a mound in Negley, uh, where he found these spear points and arrowheads and tools. Tony Kaiser, one of our board members, is really interested in Mansfield. He's done the research. So one of the things he's done is he's tried to find those collections. 
And he found out that when the house in Beaver, where the Beaver Library is now, of course, was cleaned out, some of his collections were set out on the curb and thrown away. So a lot of that stuff ended up, God only knows. If, if you think about it, just about every artifact from that era, from the, the 1700s clear up into the, the middle 1900s, wasn't professional archaeologists. It was some guy that dug it up and said, look. It's funny. I, uh, I had dinner at Lance's Port in Darlington, and there's a wall display of Native American points of arrowheads and spear points. And I don't know where they collected that. I'm sure it's local, but it's just hanging on the wall in the restaurant. They were found like a lot of points were found. They weren't dug. Farmer tilled his field. You'd think after all these years, you wouldn't find them. But you still find points. Of course, anybody that plows still, they'll still find points. So a lot of them were, were found locally in farmer's fields in Darlington, in Canelton, in, in, in that area. You'll find that most of our artifacts from the local area were found along the Little Beaver. The Little Beaver was a hunting fishing area. You know, most of the Native Americans considered it a hunting ground. So that's where you find a lot of the Native American points and stuff locally. Now, again, along the river, uh, 36 BV9 sat in industry. It's still there. There's one of the county blue signs. It's, of course, it's not where the site is because people would, would dig. They dug back to 10,000 years ago. It was a floodplain. So every time the, the Ohio would flood over, it covered over whatever. And then the, the Native Americans would come back. And so they found they were digging and digging and digging. And I mean, they they found fire pit evidence clear back to 10,000 B.C. So our history predates white men ever being here by centuries. According to the archaeologists in the county, there are 325 identified sites of Native American activity that have actually been dug in the county. Now, there is actually a map that the University of Pittsburgh has it of these sites. They won't give it out because they don't want, and I understand their reasoning, they don't want people going back to these sites and, and disturbing things because they're not archaeologists. And, and okay, so that's 325 identified sites where they found artifacts, they can verify that things you know were found. We have the major ones. And if you'll hear these terms, 36 BV. Well, 36 is the group, the, the Amawaki or whatever they call themselves, archaeology group. BV is Beaver Valley. And then the number after is the site. They all had site numbers. I personally in the museum probably have a dozen different site number artifacts from different site numbers. Now, in Ohioville, where I live, there's a mound. Nobody's ever dug into it. It's on a farm. It's verified it's there. It's a burial site. Don't let anybody dig into it. The artifacts are there, but I think unless you're a trained archaeologist or somebody like, like us that have seen it, you can walk right over something and not realize. I mean, we have a pot that's that was put together from 36 BB9 from, from shards, they date back 8,000 years. I mean, so, you know, because it was on a floodplain, so they dug it up. So the artifacts are there. Nobody seems to be interested. I mean, we're interested, but most people aren't really interested. My first experience was not from school, which I thought I should have learned a lot about Native American history in, in high school. Um, and it just didn't happen. Uh, my first experience was a book that my wife bought me as a gift. It was written in 1916 by, uh, by Ira Mansfield. Uh, he wrote several essays about different Native Americans, um, like Chief White Eyes. I had never heard of Chief White Eyes. It just sparked an interest. So I you know, started to research, and Chief White Eyes was one of the primary negotiators of the Treaty of Fort McIntosh with, uh, with the Delaware Nation, or the, the Lenape. And he was murdered for it. 
the, the, the tree at Fort McIntosh. I'd never heard of that. It was a tree signed in Beaver at Fort McIntosh giving natives rights to a huge chunk of Ohio that they would keep as a state in the new United States once it was formed. I don't understand why this history, very local history, is not taught in our schools. I feel like, I mean, we could do a lot more education-wise. I think we need to do more with pointing out the history. I think we, we could do more with the historical markers, for instance. I mean, there's only three in the county that are even related to the Native American history, which is far more vast than the 228 years that European American history of Beaver County. We were never taught any of this. I mean, the history wasn't there. We didn't learn it because, for one thing, the teachers that were teaching us weren't taught it. When we had the uh, Frederick Douglass reenactor come in, okay, gave speeches on Frederick Douglass, and we had more African-Americans from the county come to our museums than we'd ever had before. They had no idea that the Underground Railroad ran through Beaver County. So black history isn't even taught the way it should be. And that's more, much more recent than the Native American history. Local history, on the whole, isn't taught. I can't tell you how many times people come to the museum and say, well, I, well even po- pictures I post online, they say, I never knew that. I went to Aliquippa. We didn't, we didn't learn any of this stuff when we were in school. We learned about basic Indian tribes, and that was it. I had no idea until I studied this on my own, until I started reading books, and then even when I created my website, I just had no clue. It blew my mind of how significant Native American culture is to Beaver County and always will be. It's unsettling to me that we don't discuss this enough. It's just, it, it's terrible, but it's a slow process, but at least we're, you, we're making that contribution, we're making that effort, and we're getting this information out there, and that's very important. I agree. I think, and, and there are some, believe me, there are some, some local history teachers that are doing this, but it's far and few between. And the way the education system is now, it's hard to veer off book because basically you're teaching to take a test so you can get federal money. Listen, schools don't even have enough money to come for field trips to come see us to learn the local history. I'm sorry, a lot more happened in this country here than a lot of other places that we're learning about. Beaver County was a hotbed of history from, you know, from the 1700s clear up. Our display goes back. Some of the stuff is 10,000 years old. So there were Native Americans here 10,000 years ago. People don't know that. They don't know these sites existed. You'll get kids that say teepees, you know, the Indians here lived in teepees. They were living in log houses. And, and it, was, it was, a lot of them were f- familiar log houses. In other words, you'd have, you'd have a log house that was 30, 40 foot long and the whole, the whole damn family would live, you know, from relatives, aunts, everybody. So in the 50s, 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the Westerns you saw, the, the Indians were warlike and they were always, you never saw an Indian helping a white guy. And it happened a lot. Yeah, that nomadic Western history, uh, or the, the, the teepees that you, you talk about, it's unfortunate because um, that history was very brief where they were, became nomadic again after the, the diseases reduced the nation so much where they couldn't live in cities anymore. I mean, Cahokia in Illinois, at, the, at its height in 1100, had more citizens than London did at the same time. On the banks of the Little Beaver here, down where it enters the Ohio, there was an Indian village at one time, and, and this is just through, I, I mean, we, we can't verify this, but they said there, at one time there were 500 Native Americans that lived along the Little Beaver Creek. But kids don't understand that this stuff is still here. I mean, the only way we change it is dialogue like this. We need to understand that when we study Native Americans, we're basically studying ourselves, too. 
there's no culture that is perfect or nonviolent. We've all had our share of blood spilt. And when we look at Native American cultures and see them for what they were and high, how highly sophisticated and spiritual they were and to grasp that, as the Europeans did for, you know, for a considerable amount of time, but eventually, of course, we were consumed with avarice. To put something in perspective here to, to signify the importance of it all, take a look at George Washington. George Washington played such a vital role here in Pennsylvania. I would argue, and I don't know how many historians would agree with me, but I would argue that his military career actually starts here because of his you know, contribution and his leadership in the French and Indian War. This puts him in a position to where he accrues the skills that he needs to become a military commander. And of course, eventually he ends up being the general of the Continental Army. And then he ends up being the first president in the history of the United States. That all starts here. How many teachers convey that kind of important information to their students here in the Beaver County School Districts? The answer is none. Don't you think that's a little bit significant when you're talking about George Washington? I would like to think so. It's embarrassing and uncomfortable. The, the natives were treated very poorly. We stole their land at gunpoint. And the thing about it is we don't have many Native Americans in the Valley that want to even talk about it. And if they do, they're kind of, I've spoken to a few, they just don't want to talk about it. Yeah, it seems that their cultures, you know, have experienced so much anguish and deception. One of the things that I have discovered through the construction of my website is just how much blood was spilled with Beaver County. You know, there were, there were so many battles and there were so many raids. And when the French arrived first and then you had the English come, the building of Fort Duquesne and then the building of Fort Pitt. And you had all these skirmishes and, and raids and scalps and killings. Beaver County is built on blood. Every single town here has a torrid history. But the problem is it's not represented accurately. There's a duality here with the Indians and the white settlers, but I, I also try to maintain the proper balance between the two. A lot of times when you try to talk, as Dave just said, when you try to speak to Indians about this, it's, it's almost like a black mark on them. And I can understand that. And I, I can't relate to it, but I can certainly understand it and appreciate it because it, it, it's just something that, you know, you would not be proud of yourself. So I try on my website to get the Native American perspective and to also put in, you know, the white settlement perspective. Because there's two beautiful stories involved, but also bloody ones as well. You know, the cost of the development of Beaver County is quite serious. And we need to remember that and talk about it. Fort McIntosh was a frontier fort during the Revolutionary War, basically to fend off the Native American attacks. It was not there to, you know, stop a British corps or army from coming through, because that, that wasn't going to happen. They were all fighting in the East. The British military out of Fort Detroit was arming and and training native resistors to wage this, I keep using the word terrorism, but because that's what it was. They, they were not attacking the military, they were attacking citizens. So Fort McIntosh was, was put there to try and protect the citizens along the, the Ohio River. And they had a company that was called Brady's Rangers, named after Captain Samuel Brady. He would uh, form these scout units that would just patrol all along the, the Ohio River all the way down into West Virginia, of course, and they would try to find these raiding parties and send them back or kill them off. So Sam Brady had received a call for help from some farmers 
not far from Fort McIntosh. One in particular farmer, his name was Gray, I believe, had gone fishing and came back and his house was on fire. His wife and children were gone and he assumed it was a, a raid while he was away. Um, and he assumed correctly. So Brady, this gray person, and one other ranger tracked the native war party all the way up to Brady's Run Park, where Brady's Run Park is. They found him there and allegedly killed 13 Wyandots in their sleep right along the creek and scalped them, slit their throats, scalped them. And it, uh, for a time after that, Brady's Run was actually called Bloody Spring because the blood ran red there. This is all in Bousman's history of Beaver County. Did it happen? Was it 13 Indians? Probably more like two or three. You know, I, I seriously doubt that, you know, when, when, when a Native American camp, they left one guy, you know, like most camps, you left people up. You didn't, so, so who knows the true history? But to me, that kind of stuff is what gave the Native Americans a bad name. I mean, their sole mission was to destroy the Indians. And that's exactly what they did. I was really mostly interested in how the history helped to form or or, or to create uh, the folklore of the region. That's why a lot of what my book was about. The specific time was the the Northwest Indian Wars, which was, you know, the, the DMZ ran through Beaver County. It's when the, the Northwest tribes, the Northwest Confederacy formed to push back against uh, the fledgling United States and try to maintain their own territory north of the Ohio River. Um, it was a pretty bloody time. The natives were so outgunned and so outmanned um, that they had to turn to what we would call terrorism now. And they would attack undefended families, not the military. If you think about it, it was natural because they, they didn't have a standing army uh, like the United States had at Fort Pitt. So this is the only way they could push back. It's the only way they could um, they could resist. But out of that came lots of legends and, and history. And, and unfortunately, the, um, the perception that all natives were savages. I was researching the origins of folklore in the area, and it seemed to always come back to the wars. A lot of the ghost stories and the, you know, the scary, spooky stories come out of a time when Beaver Countyans were nervous and scared to live in Beaver County, and it changed our psychology. Naira wrote about a few ghostly powwows that you know people would see, and even the Barbara Davidson story allegedly could have been part of um, her military husband. You know, probably fought in the Native American War, so the Northwest Indian War, or at least the Revolutionary War. Which in Beaver County, Revolutionary War was an Indian War. It was not a force-on-force -force battle. It was the British tribes that had aligned were you know raiding along the Ohio River, the settlements. Um, so it, it just influenced these ghost stories. It influenced their, their, their origins because of the horrific acts that happened during that time. The folks that lived along the Ohio River, that was the boundary, didn't know if, you know, when they went to bed that night, if, you know, somebody was going to break in and steal everything or kill them. Or... I believe strongly that their mythos, their folklore tells us a lot about a culture or civilization, what they held important, what they held dear. Oh, the creation myths are utterly fascinating. I mean, there are so many different kinds of creation myths just in our area alone. 
Over the years, I have studied so many different creation myths and mythologies from all over the world. I'm not talking about just Greek and Roman. I'm talking about African, Indian, Middle Eastern. In full honesty, I, I do not see any culture out there that is just seems to be so imaginative and so attached to nature as Native Americans were. When you study their creation myths and their mythologies, everything is centered around nature, and it's so majestically beautiful. And it's fortunate that a lot of these mythologies have been preserved not only by the descendants of, you know, Senecas, Algonquins, Shingos, or Delaware Indians, or, but there's also an abundance of those preservations made by contemporary historians as well. And I'm just so glad and so fortunate that we have that. It just wasn't, you know, Greeks and ancient Hebrews reciting oratory. The Native Americans were doing it on this continent for 10,000 years, well, well before any kind of white European ever came here. I like to talk about the supernatural lore and aspect of things. I try to examine, though, a wide variety of material. Could it be possible if some of these tales or some of these beliefs had their origins somehow in the past, in the Native American past, is it possible that maybe even the Native Eastern Woodland Indians somehow indirectly helped to identify some of these modern day legendary creatures that people sometimes allege that they see or have encountered? The Monongi is supposedly this being that was in the Monongahela River. It's like a half fish, half, oh, how could you call it? Like a, a uh, an antique version of the creature, the Black Lagoon, that the uh, Native Americans claimed was in the river that would, uh, you know, uh, frighten people or even eat people. It was, uh, But it was also, uh, it, it, this is something that's significant to Native American culture. You, you may have a lot of affiliation with something that's, Part of a demon or part of evil, and maybe, but you also have on the flip side of that, the Native Americans always had this sentimental attachment, if you will, to the preservation of nature. And not only are these creatures, you know, from one perspective, they could be dark and they could be ugly and they could even be, you know, uh, violent and fatal to some people, but it was also an understanding that you needed to respect nature and you needed to respect the creation of nature and what, if you want to call it the Great Spirit, what the Great Spirit had put forth on the planet for the Indians to enjoy abundance and prosperity. That was very sacred to them. And you see that throughout all their mythologies. Take Bigfoot, for example, too, if you want to you know, expand on it a little bit even further. What's really interesting in here is another myth that I think we need to dispel. I'll say this briefly, but, uh, you know, it seems to me that everybody has this impression that when they first talk about Bigfoot, it's always out in the West where the first encounters are. Well, that's, that's inaccurate because the first writings and preservations of Bigfoot can go out, are, are, are recorded in the West, but those aren't the first sightings. If you actually look in, in a lot of the uh, historical journals of Pennsylvania, there are numerous historians who make mentions of stone giants, ape giants, all kinds of these uh, creatures that inhabit the woods of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky. They're all over here. They're replete. The legends are replete here, too. And I've mentioned on my website a, a, a few of those names that, that were called, that, that were properly labeled by, depending on what tribe you're talking about. So you're going to have those myths. And you're going to have those legends, and they, they first start here. And now, of course, in recent times, and I think in recent memory here, there's actually almost uh, more sightings of Bigfoot in Pennsylvania and Ohio that can almost be matched by uh, the sightings in California and Washington State. That's amazing. <laughs> That's just really amazing. 
I would be remiss, of course, if I didn't address the subject also of what we now today call Bigfoot or the Sasquatch. For the Native American people, these mysterious beings have been there since the very beginning or dawn of time. These beings also coexisted on the fringe of the Native society. Native Americans associated them with spiritual life forms. Now, some people can argue there's no physical evidence or remains, and others will argue there's nothing more than quaint superstitions. But to them, you see, the profound and the supernatural were not two separate things. For the Native American Indian, both the profane world and the supernatural world was one and the same. I find that extraordinary. You know, in the Ohio Valley region, you know, corn was a very abundant crop here, even before the arrival of the Europeans. And that material was used to make dolls. And you don't have any faces on them because it just symbolizes, you know, the uh, spirit of that person. Very much like the Hopi Indians, this was a tradition that was sacred to uh, specifically Seneca cultures, even in, in the um, Shawnee cultures here and, and some of the Delaware cultures, the dolls were used for resemblance to the uh, parents of a deceased person or, uh, you know, a mother. Like the Kachina dolls, you know, they could also suggest um, mystical communications, mystical informations between the, the spirits and the humans. But again, this had to be specific with the person who, who had made the doll. So this is something which I find a little bit fascinating because this is a tradition that seems eerily similar to Hopi culture that found its way to our area, which the Indians that lived in this area, they wouldn't have had any kind of direct contact with Hopi culture. So it just kind of makes you wonder how this doll making originated and made its way into the Ohio Valley region. I would kind of think that if you, you know, buy more research, um, you know, more exploration, you can, you know, perhaps find, you know, with the Indians and the way they passed through this area, you know, it, it, it's possible. I don't know how probable it is, but it's possible that these Hopi Indians even could have made their way up here for certain, you know, purposes, whatever it could have been to trade. It could have been to obtain metals because we have a lot of metal deposits here. So there would have been a confluence through this valley that would influence tribes to make maybe what they seen or what they heard from other tribes making. And I think that, you know, there's an interaction there. It's a mystical one, but I think, it, you know, I think to a certain degree, it's, it, it has been preserved. You know, these dolls, the, the fact that they're made out of the corn is just really significant because of the prominence that corn was. It was a life staple for them. These mythos develop in oral traditions and sometimes they have multiple versions, but some of these stories are often related or interchangeable in the different tribes. Now, Macabo was hunting with his pack of trained wolves one day when he saw the strangest sight. The wolves entered a lake and disappeared. He followed them into the water to fetch them, and as he did so, the entire world flooded. Now, Macabo sent forth a raven to find some soil with which to make a new earth, but the bird returned unsuccessful in its quests. Then he sent on the otter to do the same, but again to no avail. Finally, he sent the muskrat, and she brought back enough earth to begin the reconstruction of the present world. The trees had lost their branches in the flood, so Macabo shot magic arrows at them. Macabo then would marry the muskrat, and they became the parents of the first modern-day humans. Now, another tale is that of the beginning of time, that of the Cyrus and the Wolf Star. 
Now, Cyrus the Wolf Star became enraged when he was not invited to attend the council on how the earth should be made. So he sent a wolf to seal the first human's fate. The first humans were said to be inside the whirlwind bag that comes out of the West. Unfortunately, Cyrus dropped the bag and the humans spilled out and fled to all parts of the land and all parts of the world. When the star wolf tried to round them up, the humans ran, escaping, except for one. That human received a vicious bite from the Cyrus god. The human would survive, but not before Cyrus' stardust mingled in the man's bones. At this, Cyrus could track all of his descendants, and Cyrus began to take care of his human children, their offspring. Although these humans, who became werewolves and dogmen, eventually claimed the wolf star as a source of their power, they were said to be angry with the star-crossed lies. You know, the Eastern Woodland Indians, they believed in a great spirit, and the spirit provided them many harmonious things in this world. They, they played a small part, but they believed in the act of respect for all that dwelled in this world. They considered them savages from the beginning. They were unchristian, like, yet they had society that rivaled anything in Europe. I mean, they weren't taking a dump in a pot and dumping it out the window into their street like in Europe. We have to look at the, at the fact that a lot of the tribes, especially in Beaver County, helped the white people. The white settlers wouldn't, wouldn't have survived without the help of the Indians. This has been episode 18 of the Beaver County History Podcast, Indigenous, Perspectives on Native Americans and Local History. You've heard the voices of public historians David Halawiko, Mark Grego, Michael Kishbuker, and Tony Lavorna. of the Social Voice Project. I'm Apache, but really that's the, the government's name because they can't say They will tell me how awesome they think it is that I've decided to be a part of my culture. And it's funny to me, I'll, I'll, it like hits me really weird and I don't like it and I didn't know why at first, but it's because I haven't decided to be a part of my culture, I live it every day. I'm more comfortable with the term native divorced from Native American. If there is one term I do not like to be called is American Indian. And for me, to be indigenous is to have an intimate and interconnected relationship to a homeland. And so that's really important because land is, you know, tied to every aspect of who we are. Being Native is almost a daily reminder of your people's erasure of the fact that people don't even remember that you're here and that you exist. What I did encounter was just this preconceived notion that all Native Americans are dead. One by one, we are breaking through the low bar of expectations the media and America's founders have set for us. We are facing the problems of our people head on. More and more Native Americans are going to college and using their higher education to help their communities. More Native Americans are embracing our culture and fighting against cultural appropriation and racism. If you are a Native youth, when you hear the negative statistics, do not let them define you. You can rise above them. And if you are writing these statistics, please include in the dialogue the stories of people like me and so many others in my generation who are changing these statistics. We are fighters. 
We are indigenous. We are proud of our heritage. We are more than a statistic.